0: have been taught by indigenous elders is that you can see the creator constantly all the time surrounding you in this abundant life. Every time the rain falls, I give thanks. What a miracle that we can continue to live here and produce food. This rain, um, the people that I come from value rain so highly. And it's a it's a celebration and miracle every single time it rains. And so, so for me, the creator is is ever-present in every moment. And what I can do is demonstrate reverence through giving thanks and also for acknowledging the interdependence of how these systems work together and to be um, conscious of that as I'm making choices about how I am going to live on this land, on this world. Sarah Augustine, I'm the Executive Director of the Coalition to Dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery.
1: Welcome to Language of God. I'm Jim Stump. You may be asking yourself, what is the doctrine of discovery? It's a question that came to me only recently. We'll get into more details about what it is and how its effects are being felt today. But in short, the doctrine of discovery is a legal framework that dates back centuries that gave Christian governments the right to seize indigenous land and dominate indigenous people. I don't think I need to make a case for why Christians should be thinking about how to dismantle such a doctrine. But the links to science may be less obvious. Well, we have a lot to learn from indigenous ways of thinking and knowledge about the world, particularly as it relates to the climate and environmental crisis and the place of humans in creation. The theological perspective that allowed Christians to steal land from and destroy the lives and livelihoods of indigenous people has not been thoroughly distinguished, and the extractive and colonizing tendencies that displace so many people also played a part in the ecological mess we've made. Sarah Augustine shares the wisdom she's gained in her time spent with indigenous elders and from her own experiences as a Christian indigenous woman about how Christian discipleship could lead us toward a very different relationship, both with the land and the people whose ancestors once called that land home. Let's get to the conversation. Well, Sarah Augustine, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be talking to you.
0: Thanks so much. It's just a pleasure to be here.
1: So you're the co-founder of the organization Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. You're the author of a book that's called The Land is Not Empty, and we'll get to both of those things in a little bit. You're also a trained sociologist. You're a Native American woman. You're a Mennonite. That's a lot of intersectionality, as they say. (laughs) Can we hear some of the backstory of this? Give us a little autobiography, if you would.
0: Sure. Um, So I would begin, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, I really just grew up as a kid, growing up in apartments, um, a child of divorced parents um, in a big city and didn't really have a Mm. sense of identity much. And when I was in graduate school, a a friend from church invited me to be part of a project he was working on in Suriname, South America, where indigenous people were at that time and continue to be poisoned as a result of mercury contamination from mining. And Mm. of course, many people know that the mining interests in Suriname are all Canadian and American. And so um, that, that kind of um, uh, deposition of mine waste and the, and the impact it has on the, the biome and the, and the ecology of that place, that's all legal. Like there are legal structures in place mm. that make that um, okay. And so I was exposed to, to this um, group of indigenous people who, who were really trying to just navigate, um, first of all, displacement, being removed from their lands as a result of, you know, mining activities, and then also um, environmental impact, and then the impact on their communities and their bodies and I got involved in that as a social scientist my friend who later became my husband Dan Pablo is a um, ecologist and so he was um, really used to managing the science of toxicology and had less experience working with humans and so he asked me to come and be a part of that and that was really my introduction to the doctrine of discovery so it was kind of roundabout right i mean i i grew up in the united states um, went to high school, college, graduate school. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a state with Indigenous people as an Indigenous woman and really started to learn about the doctrine of discovery because I was trying to understand how could this environmental contamination be legal and what lever do I pull to sort of get, get people to say, oh, this this, this isn't right. And um, let's, let's hold responsible parties responsible and figure out how to work through this. (laughs) And so I was really trying to find solutions. How do we approach this problem that feels like a science problem, but actually the science was resolved, you know, more than 50 years ago. Mm. It's really a human problem. How do we work through this problem effectively? And that's how I, I learned about sort of the bedrock of um, how our legal systems are arranged in the United States and also in the world. And that is rooted in the doctrine of discovery. And so that, so that's really um, my origin story.
1: Well, I want to come back to talking specifically about the doctrine of discovery, but to work up to it through another channel that I'd like to uh, push a little further into your own background. You, you mentioned going to church and you mentioned being an indigenous woman. Tell us a little bit how these two intersect. So you're a Christian. You're a member of the Mennonite Church. Yes. How yes. does this intersect with your Native American spirituality?
0: Yes, and so I also practice Native American spirituality. And, um, well, you know, I, I would say a primary identity for me, if not a, my primary identity, is as a Mennonite. I mean, that's I take that very seriously Um a big part of um, the Mennonite tradition and understanding of the gospel is discipleship. So being faithful to the call of Christ and his ministry. And I take that very, very seriously. Um, And I am an indigenous woman and, um, and practice indigenous spirituality, which is really rooted in faithfulness to um, one's people and one's land creation, and um, and an understanding of oneself or myself, I guess, connected um, with with other living beings. In fact, all other living beings um, in what I would consider call a closed system, which is the earth. So, a closed system and system theory is a, is a physical system where there are no new inputs or outputs. So the water we have on the earth today is the water there's always been. There isn't any more coming in um, and there's no new inputs and the air we have is the air we have. And um, there are no outputs. If we create nuclear waste, there's nowhere to put it. It's going to remain here with us. <laughs> so that I would mm-hmm. say is very much uh, part of um, my understanding and my native spirituality and that we are mutually dependent within that closed system.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about your people and the land that you came from, just so we can sure. hear and identify with that part of you as much as we can?
0: You bet. So I am my, so this is uh, more, more in delving deeper into my backstory. I grew up in New Mexico. Um, but I didn't have much of a sense of my Indigenous identity beyond just dealing with, um, you know, being teased about it at school and so on, um, mm-hmm. and, and then later dealing with um, discrimination. I didn't really have a connection to to my people because my father you know, in 1943 was removed from his mother and his people and, and put in a, um, a boy's home in Denver, just 300 miles away from from his traditional mm-hmm. homeland, and so as a displaced person, you know he was a displaced person, ended up raising a family in New Mexico. But I wasn't connected to to our extended family um, or have an understanding of that place. That all really became important to me um, through this experience of working with indigenous people in Suriname and and sort of coming to terms with the fact that as a displaced person, my experience having grown up in the underclass um, and dealing with um, you know, homelessness at times, and you know, uh, my parents' struggles with um, poverty, incarceration, um, substance abuse, the, all of those things were related to, a, to a, an arc of a story, which is the displacement of indigenous peoples from their lands. Um, and, and one of the largest forms of that displacement is child removal. And so I started to really learn about that. It was kind of funny about my own story, um, getting to know people who I've now known for decades um, in South America and digging into, hey, what, what is the process of this kind of land claiming and removal of indigenous peoples from lands? And, and that is when I started to investigate who are my people and, and really found out who my own grandmother was, this young woman who, who lost her son. My father, and who are the people of that land, and um, spent time learning about that and the spirituality of that place. And so um, I now have the great privilege of living on the, the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. So that is the Yakima Indian Reservation in central Washington, not New Mexico. I live all the way at a reservation mm-hmm. in in Washington, but have grown in relationship with the Tewa people, which are my people, and in Mm. relationship with the land there, and and sort of a more intimate understanding of the history, how um, the homeland of my people was taken by executive order during World War II um, to develop nuclear energy, and has never been returned, Uh, or there's, there is no um, sort of plan to re to return it (laughs) it it is uh federal land so so yeah i've learned about that story and have taken seriously you know the the position of of myself as an indigenous woman where do i stand how do i stand with my people in a good way and with the values of the spirituality of my people which values all of creation
1: so one more question about that and then I want to turn more specifically to some of those values and how that impacts us. But just on this on this theological point that I'm kind of interested in here just because some of the circles that I've been part of worry about what they call syncretism, a kind of blending of Christian beliefs with different cultural traditions, and I should I should acknowledge that that usually means cultural different Cultural traditions that are different from the dominant Western one, of which they're a part, as though that itself isn't a culture, too, that has been responsible for syncretism with Christianity in some sense. I wonder, though, is there any, is there any different worry here for us as Christians who are trying to understand this about the understanding the Christian faith and the teachings of Jesus through the cultural lens of indigenous people?
0: Okay, so there's just a tiny little question there. No problem. Give me two or three sentences. I'll straighten that off. <laughs> so what I'm trying to
1: get you to speak to, Sarah, is the worry that I I can hear people in our audience. I can hear people in our mm-hmm. audience saying, "You're blending your Native American these these indigenous spiritual practices." Isn't that somehow? you know, distorting the true Christian faith. And I I say that in a way that I, again, I want to acknowledge that of course we all do that to some degree, right? But I I just wanna hear you speak to that a little bit, if you would.
0: So I wanna say, I'm gonna get, yes, I would love to talk about all of that. And I'm gonna give a couple of sort of (laughs) statements in advance. The first is that I am not a theologian and theologically trained, I'm not a pastor. So all all the things I can talk about are just from my own point of view and by the same extension there are many indigenous cosmologies there are more than more than one there are uh, many yep. indigenous spiritualities yep. <laughs> as many spiritualities as there are indigenous languages in this country which is more than 100 and i can only speak to to hmm. my own point of view so with you know having said that i will say that the united states in particular as a people and as a culture is really firmly rooted <clears throat> in an understanding of itself Of individualism, and I would Mm. say the way that we practice Christianity in this country is rooted in that sense of individualism. That is to say, um, an understanding of myself and my life stream, which is a limited lifetime, and that that's really the story. And I relate to God as an individual to the individual of God. And it's true that I have family and friends and community, other people I'm connected to, but, the, but the, the main character is me as an individual. And it's my job as a responsible person to care for myself and to take care of myself and that whatever excess I have, if I share it, then that, then I'm a good person. I'm doing my, my, my due diligence as a good person. And that mm. is a very specific <laughs> worldview that is not grounded, mm-hmm. from my point of view, in reality. That is to say, reality with a capital R, that is to say it is one cu- cultural viewpoint and that Christianity, um, from my point of view as a non-theologian, as, as, let me just put, I won't say Christianity, the gospel of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus as he was practicing <laughs> it was not in that Worldview or lens—that is a very specific mm-hmm. worldview that is today and contemporary in, in the United States. So, so my reading of scripture tells me that in the Old Testament, when when there were sacrifices that were being made, you know, the children of Israel were relating to Yahweh, the Creator. They were doing that as a community, and when they were being um, when they were being corrected. They were not being corrected for individual level behavior, but as a community, because the structures of society, I'm just thinking specifically of a a scripture in Amos that says, you know, that you have exacted a straw tax on the poor. And for that reason, Yahweh says, I am not interested in your sacrifices, in your celebrations, in your feasting, any of that, because of this sin. Because you are oppressing the poor. So from my point of view, the, the, a very strange sort of idea is that Christianity today, as it's practiced in the United States, is through this individual lens. So, so it, is cr- it is true that I am not practicing Christianity in that way. <laughs> But <laughs> but I don't think that necessarily... That's very helpful. Yep. Yeah, that's just one way. And it is the way in this country at this moment. And so from an indigenous... Well, I won't say from my indigenous point of view or that my cosmology, as I understand it from sitting with elders, I am responsible not just for what happens in my lifetime, but I'm very much experiencing in my life the decisions of the people that came before me and my behavior and what i do today is going to have a direct impact on the people that come after and i'm responsible for that so my job is to be really careful in making compassionate decisions and wise decisions not just for myself but for all of creation and for the people that are coming behind me not just my children but all the all the descendants that are coming and not just human um, it's my responsibility to think about how, what is the impact? What impact am I having um, in this footprint? And the goal from, mm-hmm. from what I understand from my elders is to be faithful to the creator. How do I know how to do that? By responding to the systems that are obvious in creation, mutual dependence, what is obvious in creation? Romans chapter one says, um, that, that the nature is of God is evidenced in creation itself and God's divine power and, um, nature. We can see that in the created world. And so I know because of the systems that are available to me in creation, that, um, faithfulness that, uh, rain falls on the just and the unjust right i don't need to to practice in a particular way in order to know that that spring will return and that 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 pollinators will return to the soil that the soil that the microbes in the soil which we as humans still don't really understand how those microbes work but that tiny environment is making food possible for us that we're in the symbiotic relationship with with what an elder um and mentor has taught me to call the standing green nation. That is the plants that are also here. We are in a symbiotic (laughs) relationship with them that I, that what I do matters and that faithfulness or discipleship is being, um, accountable to that. And to me, that is not at odds with the gospel of Christ. Um, and, and it's possible to, to participate in both of those things. Um, in a good way. Good.
1: Yeah. Okay. You're transitioning very well into the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is ecology and what we at Biologos have often called creation care. And it's one of these, I think, touch points that, that we as an organization that's primarily focused on science and faith have with your work in in particular and with this indigenous understanding. So in chapter nine of your book and on a couple of episodes of your podcast, you address Uh, creation, what I'm calling creation care, from a distinctly theological perspective, noting that Western religion has predominantly understood faith to be at the center of their spirituality, where indigenous spirituality often begins with reverence. So can you keep going further down this road you've already started by unpacking that difference a little bit and what difference it makes for how we could approach the rest of creation?
0: you bet so so from my point of view and this is this is in keeping with with the people who have taken the time to sit with me and teach me um elders you know the the creator is available to me constantly and at any time and in every moment um in creation i don't have to i don't have to look far the ground itself demonstrates the faithfulness of the creator the creator is in in the sky um where, where I live in this hemisphere in North America this and the sun is rising, um, in the east and I can look out, um, at the pasture, the east pasture where I live here on this farm. And, and that sun providing a new day, a new opportunity for me, um, to continue to live this amazing opportunity to experience life as a human being that is provided to me in the morning. Um, that is the creator available to me constantly, all the time. Um, the creator is available to me in, in all of the life that is abundantly around me. That the creator is faithful and showing faithfulness to me and to us all. And I do I, I don't have to do anything to earn that. That is the nature of faithfulness. And my job is to is to act with reverence towards that. So in the in the tradition that I have learned, I don't give thanks you know on Sunday morning or um or just once in a while. I give thanks every single morning at dawn. Every morning at dawn I face the sunrise and give thanks. And and my you know my child has also been raised to do that and our family um Practices that 365 days a year. (laughs) If I'm sick Mm -hmm. and I miss the sunrise, as soon as I take a step outside, I'm going to give thanks because that is demonstrating reverence. My place in the family of things, I have a role and also a responsibility. And so faith is sort of this understanding. This is the way I was raised in the Christian church that I learned at Sunday school that faith is a belief in something that I can't see. When in in the indigenous, uh, the way I've been taught by indigenous elders is that you can you can see the creator constantly all the time surrounding you in this abundant life. How can you life. not
1: see the creator, yes, right? Yes, the creator is there with you
0: constantly and all the time. Every time the rain falls, I give thanks. What a miracle that we can continue to live here and produce food. This rain, um, the people that I come from, value rain so highly, and it's a it's a celebration, and a miracle every single time it rains. And so, so for me, the Creator is is ever present in every moment. And what I can do is demonstrate reverence through giving thanks, and also for acknowledging the interdependence of how these systems work together, and to be um, conscious of that as I'm making choices about how I am going to live on this land, on this world, um, and so. So if, if I believe that God is absent and I have faith in the absence of what I can't see, it's a different kind of understanding of what that relationship is. Mm. And so if, mm. if I am practicing reverence and I understand, hey, God is present here and now and in every moment, and the, the miracle of life is surrounding me in every moment, and that is fragile, it is flexible and fragile and also, um, Mm. uh, it is responsive and it also is resilient, but it's resilient to a point, right? It's also fragile. And what I do in my role makes a difference in, and how this is going to work. So I live here on 200 acres of an organic beef ranch. And, you know, we practice, um, water conservation, um, by, uh, we don't do traditional, um, we don't raise traditional hay. We, we are a grass fed operation and we transitioned our, all of our um, land to, um, to drought resistant grass, native grass. So, so that we don't have to provide irrigation. Um, When you compare our impact with our predecessor, the person who farmed here before us, we can serve 26 million gallons of water every month during the irrigation season. Mm. And so, you know, and wow. yeah, I mean that's a big impact, and it's, you know, it's it's good for a lot of reasons, but but when you irrigate um, 24 hours a day, which is what wheel lines do, you you move them, you know, across the um, across the pasture, so every um, square inch of soil is not getting 24 hours a day of of irrigation but that but some portion of the of the pasture is always being irrigated that's very hard on the soil it um, leaches nutrients from the soil it exhausts the soil it makes it difficult for that for the the uh, microbes in the soil to regenerate themselves and so by you know using practices that we use, we don't have to, we don't experience that. So it's just a small example of saying, I am here caring for this place. What is the best way I can do that and be conscious of the impact, not just on me and my family, but on creation itself. And so on this 200 acres we have, it's a little bit like a wildlife preserve. I've been living here now for 17 years and we have ducks in our riparian area who have been there for so many, you know, seventeen generations, right? of ducks have been there. Mm-hmm. So when we go walking through, you know, down the to the barn on this little trail, they don't even really startle. you know they they we're embedded <laughs> in this place. you know what I'm saying? Like we You're have
1: part of creation,
0: yeah, right? we're part of it. And, and the um, you know, we have we have relationship with many animals that live here. but but by not coming in and using tractors um or four wheelers to cultivate, you know we're creating habitat for many different species of animals to live here. So we actually have a little micro biome here, that uh, ecology that that um, that we get to be a part of. And so, so I'm not saying everybody has to has to do that, but I'm saying in our individual lives and as a society, structurally at a structural level, what is our responsibility to care for not just ourselves and our households, but All of creation. Hey, Language of
1: God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast, we just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, book reviews, and other resources for pastors, students, and educators. We also have an active online forum. We discuss each podcast episode, but it goes far beyond that, with lots of open discussions on all kinds of topics related to science and faith. Find it all at biologos.org. So let's push one step further into that as you're talking about the non-human creation as well. And what was the word your elders used? The green? Standing
0: green nation. That would be plants and trees and so on. Yeah.
1: So we're part of this, cre- this creation. I think uh, words are important here and prepositions here when we maybe say instead of living on the land, we are living with the land, right? Yes. We're part of part of this community but some people may have been surprised to just hear you say you have a beef farm yeah that's that you right. raise <laughs> beef and slaughter them we do yeah. how is this and how do you square this with treating with reverence do people wonder whether that's somehow inconsistent to uh, have to eat things? Is this, or can we do that in a way that is still treating the rest of creation with reverence?
0: Yeah, and thank you. Um, and this, it does come up sometimes, especially we have student groups that come and visit us here on our farm or our beef ranch. Um, you know, I think something that's really important to acknowledge is that we are part of the food web. And by we, I mean human beings. We are not separate from the food web. There is no way in which we can be separate from the food web. We are part of it. Um, we are con- we consume food um, so that we can continue to to participate in life. And so that food, whether it's uh, animal or vegetable, is being you know dies so that we can, live i mean you know at a Mm -hmm. cellular level that's the case Mm -hmm. you know those things are being broken down so that we're we're able to live and that's and we're not alone that's how all animals live and so um Mm -hmm. and you could even argue that plants require um animals to break down so they can continue to live right i mean so we are part of this web of of life. life yes we are indeed and so i think it's there is some arrogance in thinking that we are somehow separate from that and so You know, those people who are, who choose to be vegan or vegetarian, I have a lot of respect for those decisions. Um, I myself have, there's nothing that's made me want to consider being a vegetarian like living with animals on a daily basis, raising animals and living in relationship with animals. And if I were to choose to become vegetarian, for example, and I were to, um, and I were to raise soy here on this land, if we're gonna um, raise wheat or corn, those are the the primary things that vegetarians would eat. I would have to destroy the ecosystem that we've built here and all the animals that live here now and call this home would be removed and destroyed to make that happen. So it's not that when you're a vegetarian, no animal dies for you to eat. Animals do die for you to eat, they do, because we're part of a food web. And so for me, one of the things we've chosen to do as a family is to be really intentional about how we're going to interact with the animals that we're raising as food. And, um, and so our animals are born here and they die here on this property with as little stress as possible. They're never in a feedlot. Um, they are not given hormones or antibiotics um, in order to make them grow and to be palatable. Um, they live um, in, in a peaceful environment, um, with, in a low stress environment. And so we see our life with them as being symbiotic. have a symbiotic relationship.
1: So I want to push a little further into our relationship to these, mm-hmm. to these other creatures. And there's a line from your book that from the indigenous perspective, even the hunter, when he uh, finds his prey, finds his brother. Is that the way it, is that the
0: way it was called? Yes. And so this is, this is actually, um, sort of a, a, a saying or wisdom from here, this land, the, among the Yakima people, they say when the hunter um, goes to seek his prey, he knows that it is his brother that, mm-hmm. he, will, that he will find, right? And so understanding that, that the relationship between the, the hunter and the prey is a familial one, that that animal is sacrificing its life to give you life. And that Mm. animal is, is your relative. It's not some abstract um, sort of um, mindless automaton. It's, it's a living being um, that is dying so that you can live. And so, you know, that's also a practice that we have in my family is um, every time we eat beef, we give thanks for the sacrifice, the animal that was sacrificed Mm. for, for the meal.
1: So. The science of evolution confirms this, right? That all creatures are our relatives in a very literal sense. So that shouldn't uh, take us by surprise to, to say that. But I wonder now, let me ask one, one more part of this, that Christian theology has traditionally understood the doctrine of the image of God to be an important descriptor for human beings that in some sense at least sets us apart from other creatures or, or maybe at least gives us a different calling, set of responsibilities toward the rest of creation. How well does that square with indigenous perspectives on being human? And maybe for you in particular as an indigenous Christian, what do you think of this doctrine of the image of God?
0: So, I I would I would kind of go about that two ways. <laughs> the first is to say we have two creation stories in Genesis. The first is in chapter one, and the second is in chapter two, and they're quite different actually. And so it, mm-hmm. it might be interesting uh, to think through what the takeaway message is in each one of those. Um, you know, so I I would say I I um, I relate more to the to the creation story in in Genesis two. <laughs> So that would be one way um, of going about it, which I feel is a more holistic way. If, if the image of God, if we are made in the image of God and that image is consistent with what we know of Christ, um, that is the, the, um, the message and the ministry of Christ Then I don't think these things are inconsistent, um, at all. I think, um, Jesus talked about the the lowest being being put up high, and um, that Mm -hmm. um, that being like a child is is the thing that makes you first in the kingdom of God. And Jesus was not talking about a hierarchy, a structural hierarchy where people were ranked. When the disciples came to him and asked, "Hey, which of us is going to be first in the kingdom of God?" you know that was a pretty silly question from his point of view, and. And he said, you know, the first in the kingdom of God will be those that are like a little child. And so this understanding of when we we turn to hierarchy and say, hey, you know, we have a nature like God, and therefore we have the, the right to dominate and subdue and to overpower and control and extract for our own purposes, that's completely inconsistent with the message of Christ.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this leads to another topic that our organization has increasingly addressed, um, which is what does it mean to be human? And I mentioned earlier you've co founded an organization called Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. So let's uh, address this more directly here now. And I'm a bit ashamed to admit that I had not heard of the Doctrine of Discovery until fairly recently. And On the one hand, some might think I should be forgiven for that since it was a doctrine formulated, what, some five or six hundred years ago. But on the other hand, I've come to learn just how wide reaching its effects have been on our world as a whole and on indigenous peoples more specifically. So start here, if you would, by describing. uh, So when did this doctrine come about? And then how does it connect specifically to this question I've asked of what it means to be human or at least who gets to be counted as fully human?
0: Sure. So I'm going to begin that by saying that the doctrine of discovery is a legal doctrine in the United States today and around the Mm -hmm. world. And so Mm -hmm. it is it is a paradigm that we live in that is invisible to us because we're living in it. But it is this it is the state of reality in our law. And it was it was embedded in our legal system in 1823 by a series of Supreme Court decisions that were written by um, Chief Justice Marshall. And so there isn't one law about the doctrine of discovery. There are hundreds and maybe thousands of laws rooted in the doctrine of discovery that is to say all of our institutions reflect this logic because it is so deeply ingrained in our society so what is the it that i'm talking about well the doctrine of discovery says um it was it was a doctrine that was created by the church um at the time of um when Europeans had the technology to be able to, uh, to traverse oceans and go around the world and begin to expand, um, the church wrote a doctrine that justified why it was not only okay, but um, it was God's will that Europeans would go and subdue and dominate the whole earth and basically mm-hmm. enslave all the peoples of earth, including indigenous peoples. And that is called the Doctrine of Discovery or the Discovery Doctrine. One of the main tenets of this doctrine is what's called terra nullius. It's another legal term. Obviously, it's in Latin. It means empty land. And, and what, uh, what this original um, doctrine said, it was in a series of papal bulls, it said um, that if, if terra nullius means empty land, if a European monarch or the representative came upon a land that was inhabited, it was considered empty of human beings if it was not ruled by a Christian monarch. Hmm. So anyone who was non-Christian was considered to be a pagan or an infidel and that they were something other than human Hmm. and Hmm. that God had ordained that, um, that the church the, that the church represented God and God's will and were therefore empowered and emboldened and justified in going to all the places of earth and claiming those lands for the church. And so um, and this doctrine of discovery is enshrined in our law today. And um, as recently as 2005, Um, That's the most recent Supreme Court decision that was based on the doctrine of discovery. And that Mm -hmm. was the Oneida Nation that was buying back um, land they had lost and wanting to add it to their reservation. And um, they didn't want to pay taxes for that because it was trust land. They wanted land to go back into trust. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion saying, based on the discovery doctrine, that land does not belong to you. It is the land of the United States because of this discovery doctrine the discovery doctrine says those people that were discovered do not have um absolute title to their lands only those people that that the european force that came and discovered them so that is our coalition is is our work is dismantling that um, doctrine
1: good so let me uh forgive me for For continuing to try to push you into theological directions,
0: (laughs) sure, I don't (laughs) mind.
1: My own discipline uh, comes to the (laughs) fore here. The questions I'm thinking of, but back. Back on episode 115 on this podcast, we talked to uh, African-American theologian Willie James Jennings, who's researched some of the theology that colonizers used to rationalize their conquests. And I don't think anybody today disagrees that what people did back then was horrible and absurd. You, You tell in the book how it became the practice that a priest coming with the conquerors to new lands would read in Latin the theological statement that the indigenous people there must submit or be subjected to violence and it would be their yep. own fault if they, yeah. you know, this is absurd, right? Yep. But I wonder, and here I'm trying to invoke uh, perhaps some some circles that that would continue to feel that maybe there was something okay, not about the violence, but maybe about spreading the gospel that justifies some degree of colonization and conquest. Yeah. What's wrong with that view from a theological, even a, even a biblical perspective for why, no, no, that is not the way that we as Christians ought to think about these people who are in, indigenous.
0: You bet. So I'm going to start with the law and then I'll get there. So in 1823, okay. when Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall was writing these decisions, um, he said that the indigenous people here in the United States had been justly compensated for the loss of their land because they received two things. <laughs> One is civilization, and the other is Christianity. That indigenous people in the United States were justly compensated for the loss of their lands. That is all of their wealth, all of their self-determination that they, that they still do not have to this day. Um, that was taken away, and the compensation was... Um, was Christianity and civilization. And so theologically, from my point of view, um, Jesus states his mandate in Luke chapter four. So Jesus has just come out of the desert. He's where he's been fasting for 40 days. And you know the next story is he, he goes into the temple and he's reading a text from Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has ordained me um, to bring good news to the poor. And that's what he says. And so what is that good news? The spirit of God is upon me because he has, um, he has ordained me to bring good news to the poor. And that is, uh, he's, he lists out what those things are. Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, uh, release for the prisoner, and to pronounce the year of our Lord's favor, which is jubilee, um, and I would interpret jubilee as the just reordering of human systems, jubilee. So, um, Western civilization yeah.
1: wasn't Western civilization wasn't one of those things Jesus said he was coming to proclaim to everybody. <laughs> this, is, this
0: is what he said. He <laughs> as a liberator. This is h- h- what he says is his mandate. These four things, right? He's he's there to do those four things. So when he sends his disciples out. Um, With the Great Commission, and says, "Go into all lands and all people and teach this good news." That was not that good news. Was not domination, war, dominion, enslavement, genocide. That is not the gospel of Christ. So, I mean, that's that's the first thing I will say. And and another thing I will say is that um, so much of the way our society is arranged, an individualist society, is is, is, is extracting society. That is to say, um, a refusal to acknowledge that you were embedded in a closed system of mutual dependence. I can go into a place as an individual, and if I have the money to buy it, I can strip it of all of its natural resources. I can sell those to anyone I want to. If I have enough money, I can go into another country like Suriname or French Guiana and buy that and strip it of all the natural resources and I can pollute that. I can pollute the waters. We know that mining waste, um, the impact is, it goes on for centuries. The impact is profound, but, but through this extractive mindset where I am the center, the most important thing, all I need is money to be able to go in and do that. That extractive mindset is, um, is well, I would say it runs counter to the gospel of Christ and I would also say that it is, you know, it's it destroys our ability to live as a species on this planet. Um, I believe that um, we're we are participating extraction to the extent we're changing climates. We're like a a geophysical force of nature, humanity on the planet now. And we are not going, we don't have the power to destroy life itself, but we can destroy our ability as human beings to live here. Yes, we can. And we're on the road to doing that. So when we engage in decolonization, and saying no we want to live a different way. We're going to we're going to live a different way based on discipleship. We are actually saving ourselves, right? Not just indigenous people, not just, you know, nature. We're we are returning to a, a sense of mutuality.
1: Yeah. So I I think it may be easy for some of us to hear you talking about these extractive technologies and companies that are doing this and, and for us in the church to think, yeah, they're bad. They need to stop doing that. But I don't want you to let us off the hook too soon here quickly either. And how we ourselves, we, the church with, I, I hope the best of intentions, but have contributed to this as well. So much so, in fact, that that you quote somebody here in chapter five of your book that I just thought was so powerful, and you're quoting Stan McKay, who says this really provocative thing. Cree elder from Canada. Okay, so he's part of the Cree. Um, this really provocative thing that I think lot many Christians will hear, but I want you to talk about this as a way uh, that we... We in the church need to hear because he said, I feel the activity of proselytization should cease until the people of the church, both settler and indigenous, comprehend how the doctrine of discovery presently influences them. So when I was saying earlier that some people are going to want to try to justify some of this colonization in terms of spreading the gospel, here the response is, you know, maybe we need to just stop that altogether until we really realize how embedded those practices have been with this doctrine of discovery. Can you give us maybe a few examples of how, again, with good intentions, the missionary activity has not followed this example of Christ that you were just describing?
0: Well, missionaries are often the vanguards of economic development. So economic development in the international economy is kind of what we say, hey, you know, economic development is for the good, right? The UN has economic development goals. But but it's almost always the case that vulnerable people and indigenous people among them are the people who are paying the price for that economic development. And so missionaries um, often will come into settings, kind of round up people and make way for economic forces to come in and begin the process of extraction. That that relationship is well documented and those two things go hand in hand. Um, And so basically Mm -hmm. Christian missionaries come in and their job is part of their job is to Westernize the people that they're proselytizing to, right? So it's not just about sharing Jesus, it's about sharing Western culture and justifying Western culture as the superior culture and the morally superior culture. So um, that sort of process of of asking people to give up their own culture, step away from their own history and um, understanding of reality, step into a Western vision, um, creates the opportunity to come in and exploit that place. And that—one um, thing I want to say, too, and I think this is really important for the church to grapple with, you know, the largest private landowner on earth is the church. <laughs> so when we're talking about land return, um, you don't have to begin with governments. You can, you can begin with church bodies. Um, so huge beneficiaries— of colonization have been the Christian Church. A primary beneficiary of colonization is the Christian Church, and so Christian churches are also financially embedded in extractive industry. That is to say, um, retirement funds, um, the 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 you know not only four hundred one ks but also trust funds that churches have or or the 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 wealth that churches have is invested in mining gold mining, copper mining. Um, it's invested in oil extraction, natural gas, because these are the most profitable industries, right? And so just like every other major corporation, churches are invested in these without any consideration for the impact on the people who have to live in the impact zone of where that extraction is taking place. As, um, as we, we are trending towards a green economy and there's a lot of emphasis on that and a push to do that. Uh, many Christians are advocating for, um, you know, additional investment in copper mining, lithium mining, without any regard to the people that are living in those impact zones. So, so habitually there's this process of saying, Oh, if we're going to live in a green way, that doesn't mean we want to live sustainably. We're just going to extract a different set of resources. And, um, regardless of the consequences.
1: So you had a really fascinating suggestion then for those of us who who uh, really do feel the spreading the gospel mission of Christ to be something we should take seriously, that instead of going to those indigenous communities, maybe we go to the uh, big mining corporations, these extractive industries, the financial institutions, and be missionaries there. You're serious about this, right? I
0: am serious. It's not a metaphor. I really mean it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I really mean it. I mean, if you think about it, you know, whose immortal soul is at risk? Um, is it is it people who are living in cooperation um, gently on the land, or is it people who are at the helm of this um, earth destroying extraction? Um, and and what would it mean to send missionaries? To mining executives and to world leaders, to me it would be we we would have print postcards with the pictures of the missionaries. We would say this family um, based in Toronto or um, or Denver, and they would go learn the language, spend time, and witness to the people who are um, who are at the helm of um, the systems of death.
1: Mm. Well, it's not hard to imagine which side Jesus would be on and when you put those two groups of people next to each other, right? Amen. Well, Sarah, our time is coming to a close here. I have really, really appreciated uh, your conversation and this work. I've mentioned your organization, Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery. Uh, You also have a podcast by that title. I'll mention the book again, which is called The Land is Not Empty. Any other uh, resources you'd like to point our audience toward?
0: Sure. Thank you for asking on uh, March 10th. Um, there will be a, a free um, webinar that's hosted by Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. It's called Unraveling the International Law of Colonialism, the 200th Anniversary of Johnson versus McIntosh. So if you want to learn more about the Doctrine of Discovery and how it remains embedded in our legal system, um, please check out this webinar. It's an all-day event, and um, I've sent the the uh, website to use if you want to put it in your liner notes and the other yep. just quick plug I will make is that Sherry Hostetler who's my um, co-host for um, our podcast and I are working on a book um, and that will come out in the fall and um It is called So We and Our Children May Live, Following Jesus and Confronting the Climate Crisis. and It will be published by Herald Press in the fall of 2023.
1: Excellent. Well, perhaps when that is out, we can talk again.
0: That would be terrific.
1: In uh, closing, we like to shift gears a little bit and ask our guests what they've been reading lately. Anything on your list that's interesting?
0: Something that I would really like to recommend to others is a book called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And this is by um, Tyson Yukaporta. Sand Talk, it's called. It's really a fabulous read. He's a, a Maori um, from New Zealand. and Wonderful um, uh, reading. And um, the other one that I would suggest um, is um, called required reading climate justice adaptation and investing in indigenous power and this is by the ndn collective um, required reading it's also just a great read uh collection of essays
1: well super well thank you again for your work for your uh inspiration to to us to live more consistently according to the teachings and the model of christ and thank you so much for talking to me today
0: it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors and listeners who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin hughworth That's me. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River Watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum, or visit our website, BioLogos.org, where you will find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.